Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of 40-ish. Where we find out how many kids did Jason shake his fist at, shouting, get off my lawn, you young whippersnappers. Two. Today's total is two. Yeah, and it's the same two, because they're not good listeners. Get off my lawn! That's that's the crux of the whole problem. They were they were wow, they were engaged we're in Tom the Fury. Out. The bingo cards are going. I've got um, oh I've got Crux. Do you have Tom Foolery on there? Tom Foolery. Nice, nice. Hooligans engage in shenanigans. Anyway, uh, welcome everybody to episode number thirty-eight. Uh, happy to be joined as always by uh, Mr. Lance Abear. Hello, uh, Mr. John Moody. You're damn right. You're happy to be joined. I, re- I retract the last statement, and uh, we are privileged and pleased to continue our trend here of inviting pretty hip people to talk to. Uh, we're joined tonight by Mr. Rich Austin. Rich is part of the Sandler Training uh, firm uh, based now. He's based in the greater Chicagoland area. Before, he worked uh, at a training center in Ann Arbor. I, I, no, I, I, can, I barely can say those words. But uh, regardless, Arbor. No, I won't do it. Regardless, Rich, welcome to 40 ish. Thanks Western for joining. Western was always considered the poor man's Michigan. So that's not that bad. That's central. N- no. <laughs> Rich, thanks for joining us tonight. <laughs> Thank you, gentlemen, for the warm and gracious welcome. Well, we're happy to have you here. And I'm sure you're getting every ounce of this as we continue through. So, um, Let's start with a couple things. So, Rich, would you do us the kind favor of giving us a little bit of an elevator pitch of who you are and what you do? Sure. So on the professional side, I I happen to run a professional development firm. Um, And so we specialize in behavioral change, working with our clients to help them implement a sales culture that uh, drives proactive activity and impacts the bottom line. So uh, that said, what does that mean? Our focus is on sales training, uh, management consulting, and uh, our our clients are CEOs and presidents and directors of sales who come to us with uh, a happy bottom line and, and, and they're quite frankly, um, not too unpleased with their results uh, from a sales perspective, but they could get better in terms of prospecting. Uh, They believe that their process for sales in terms of qualifying could be improved. And in terms of closing and presentations, there are some things we want to tweak. And so my job then is to help our clients not look, um, act, sound, be perceived like, or smell like a salesperson. Mm. And so this is the the biggest thing. So uh, Rich wa- Rich and Sandler were hired by my company, not the one I own, the one I work for. Do I own a cup? No. What day of the week is this? Anyway, Rich uh, came in to do sales training, and I am not a salesperson for our company, nor have I been a salesperson for any of the roles I've held in my entire life. So I kind of went into this with a with blinders on, a little bit of shade going, there's no chance this is going to be valuable for me whatsoever. And two or three sessions in, I realized that a lot of what Rich and the Sandler method teach is is not so much the nuts and bolts of sales, but the nuts and bolts of trust and the psyche of how people think and the relationship build and equal business stature and all these terms that have now become second nature to both myself and and others whom I work with. So um, 
if you ever, I'm going to put this out there as a public service announcement. If you get the opportunity to speak with someone, uh, whether it be Rich or someone else associated with Sandler or Sandler style, although there really isn't another style like it, to to better uh, you grow your skill set in communication alone, hmm. uh, I cannot endorse it enough. It's been it was a stellar situation then, and I continue to believe it is now. So there, there's glowing endorsement without even being asked. <laughs> Thank you. So, uh, so the first thing I want to ask then is, uh, and this is, I'm going to open it up to the group, but we'll start with Rich. When you're entering into a a brand new business arrangement where we'll, we'll say it's, we'll say the, the, the business you're going to do has already been established, but you're on the beginning stages of establishing communication and the ability to, um, engage in conversations with trust. What are some of the, the key factors everybody thinks they look for or should look for in, in a business partner whom you hope to have a long relationship with? What are some of the key factors that that person or organization needs to possess for you to feel comfortable in engaging with a, in a business relationship? So I'll start with Rich. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And, um, you if, don't if I have to... to pander to him like that, you don't have to. <laughs> Yeah, I thank you. Thank you for the permission, gentlemen. I, I think that is one very important piece. Do we have to have permission to to be honest and be blunt? So I'll just I'll take it in that direction. Um, we have to establish expectations with great clarity up front. If I understand exactly what you're trying to accomplish and why you're bringing me in and the motivation behind that from a, not only a, a professional perspective, but a personal perspective, I understand what a win is for you personally, then I can I can proactively make sure that, that everything I'm doing from a behavioral standpoint is, is going to be towards that end. And if you understand exactly what my expectations are and uh, what I'm trying to accomplish and that fits with what you're trying to do, now we've got a, a that can last. And so it's not unlike defining what a good relationship would look like for you in a, in a personal perspective. You know, what is the ideal partner for you? And if you were to jot down, let's say, 10 traits and characteristics of what that individual would have, that's um, not unlike what you would look for in a good business partner. So if I'm picking one thing, Jason, it's we have to have clarity and expectations. And, um, and, and let's make sure that, that we're blunt and we're direct about that. And we're not shying away from some of the tougher conversation pieces, which in, in my experience, I found most humans and most people uh, are not willing to dive into those types of areas. Gotcha. So Moody, I'm interested in your perspective on that too, because so for those who don't know, and listeners have discovered this probably, Moody pulls zero punches whatsoever. <laughs> so, And he is probably engaging right. in multiple new relationships on a daily basis in his line of work. Moody, what's your vibe on this? Uh, you know, I think it's the same thing along the lines with Rich. It's like I look mostly for um, whether it's an artist coming to me to establish a relationship with my company or because I've been doing so much um, scouting for marketing and things like that. So, you know, it's people I am looking to work with, it's authenticity. It's that thing of as, you know, you're talking with them, you can tell that they're actually paying attention to your needs and they're not just trying to make a sale. They're trying to meet your needs. Or the artist is coming to us and it's very clear that of what they're hoping to get out of this relationship, not just, you know, I, I'm here for free stuff. And it's like, well, that's not how this, this whole thing works. It's more of, you know, I've done this, this, this. This is what I'm hoping to do. This is what I'm hoping to get out of it. How can we make this work together? 
So it's, it's stuff where I don't, you know, you can come and just tell me everything that you want, like just flat out. And then from there, then we've got something to work, work towards because then there's no, there's no dancing around anything. There's no, um, trying to guess there's no subtlety. Just, yeah. Tell me what you want. I'll in the same thing when I'm looking for somebody, it's like, Hey, these are my needs for this relationship. And, uh, the minute I have somebody feel like they're just trying to either read from a uh, sales reel or it's the way they're just saying stuff. It's clear that they weren't really listening to understand my needs, but they were listening just so they could reply. Um, that's where you usually, uh, you lose my respect real quick. Yeah, I definitely notice there's a difference between uh, listening to someone and processing what they're saying versus waiting for your turn to talk. Right. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. So Lance, uh, I'm curious for you as well in your role. I mean, and caveat for all of this, um, in terms of our podcast, we're starting within ourselves to have conversations around what a business relationship could look like. But uh, Lance, uh, what, what are you feeling on this? Well, I'd, I'd, I'd like to think that I've got a you know stronger business at, uh, acumen than I wouldn't say most, but I, you know, I've been in the corporate world now for you know, pretty much my entire career, I've been in a customer service oriented business in pretty much any role that I've been in and be it retail, be it distribution, you know, healthcare that I'm in now, but I understand business in, in a different aspect in a different way perspective, I think than, you know, a lot of people, because I don't have mm-hmm. that skilled training that a lot of people would and you know going through a bba or an mba program understanding business i I understand business more from a customer perspective and a servant perspective i mean that's why i mean our the leadership that is in the company that i work for now is really geared towards a service-based leadership and i think in that that type of leadership style and that type of understanding and perspective as far as how business is run is, you know, it's interesting because it can be pretty much used and utilized in any type of business. I mean, I'm in, I'm, I'm in healthcare, but I don't have, I don't have any, any control over what my customers spend. I don't have any control over what they, what they buy. Uh, I provide a service to them that is something that helps the company, helps the business to possibly reach, you know, further sales down the road. But I mean, my, my, what I do every day doesn't create any revenue, doesn't create any, uh, any jobs, but it's a, it's a service that I provide that, <clears throat> and and that's pretty much what where I've been in most of my career has all been the service side of things. I mean, I I feel like I I've I've always dreaded sales and dreaded being you know, that salesperson, even though I I can talk well and I feel like I can present well what I mm-hmm. what I believe in and what I want to get across to people. I mean, and that's why, I mean, the Toastmasters thing is, has helped me considerably too and how I present to sure, you know sure. meetings and how I present to uh, 
um, you know, executives because I may, I, I may be called up to a um, senior vice president uh, sales meeting next week up in actually up in Chicago in a couple of weeks, actually, to uh, present a project that we've been working on for the past 18 months. So <clears throat> nice. I'm hearing Rich's voice in my ear and not actually, I'm just kind of going back to several sessions. So I have a couple of questions for Rich, but Rich, do you have anything to push back against any of these? Cause I feel like, I feel like there's a opportunity there for a change in perception. Well, I look, it's completely normal um, for anybody who's in sales or on the peripheral to, to feel nervous as they enter into a sales opportunity. Because if you think about it, you're showing up in a capacity um, to set, to convince somebody to do something or to sell somebody something. Um, and if, if you think about um, the stigma that there is that exists, not only here, but, but really across the world about salespeople, it's not a good one. I mean, we're not, we're not, raised at four or five, six years old and, and mom and dad are laying us down to bed at night and they're saying, uh, Jason, just wait till you grow up. You're going to be the greatest salesperson in the world someday. It, they're not saying things like that, right? They're saying you can go out there and you can be a police officer. You can be the president of the United States. You can be um, an attorney. You can be anything you want to be, but but they don't, parents don't necessarily uh, push their children into becoming salespeople and, and for good reason. They, they just don't have a great reputation. And so I think it was something that John said, um, what's your intention? Are, are you coming in here to try to sell me something? Um, and if you look at the psychology of a salesperson um, and you put them in a high pressure, high stress environment, um, all of a sudden they start to lose their emotional composure. They forget why they're there. They're nervous. Um, they, they've got something prepared. Maybe it's a script um, and, and maybe they, they want to go in and genuinely and authentically ask some questions to learn. But because their nerves get the best of them, they rely on what they know. And what do they know? They know their stuff. They know their product or their service. And so they just start spewing it out and they're not listening um, because they want to make a sale and because they've, they've completely forgotten their, their script or, or what they're supposed to be doing. And by the way, uh, they're probably compensated in a manner that's consistent with if you sell, you get to make money and therefore eat and provide for your family and they've got quotas right. and so there's a lot of pressure uh, that exists there and I get it um, but the, the, the whole situation is designed to put somebody in a, in a position where they're uncomfortable and um, that's where we see salespeople getting the typical reputa reputation that they receive and, and so we have to fight all of that psychology and uh, people don't really going to a sales opportunity, thinking about all those things, it's buried in the subconscious. But I think um, my job and what you probably experienced in some of our sessions is we have to bring all that to the surface. We have to face it and we have to overcome it. And it's really like any bad habit that you might have in life. Um, you know what the problem is, but do you know what the root of the problem is? And that's where we have to start. Well, I'd like to ask mm -hmm. you a question then, Rich, because I've been involved deeply in our uh, diversity and inclusion council at work. And uh, one of the things that we've talked about numerous times is that unconscious bias. And, you know, it, it's almost like that. It's almost like the salespeople, it, most salespeople have that, not, I wouldn't say the salespeople, but the, the customers that they interact with, a lot of them may have that unconscious bias of saying, what is your what is your ulterior motive to you know to speaking to me right now, and you know that it becomes it becomes that bias of you know they don't want to speak to you and so it's trying to overcome that that bias from a sales standpoint that 
is, you know, could be a challenge. Am I, I mean, am I off base there? No, I, it's one of the things that I talk about with brand new groups. So I, I throw a statistic out and I'll, and I'll say to them what we understand right now in terms of uh, the world of psychology is that about 77% of human behavior is program behavior. And so what does that mean? Um, it, it means that given a certain set of circumstances, human beings are going to react very predictably. And so if I say, hey, Lance, how are you? Chances are you're going to say, uh, great, thanks for asking. And it's like a robotic scripted thing that just happens. We don't even think about it. Whereas if I were to say, hey, Lance, how are you? And, and you happen to say, oh, I feel like complete and utter crap. Um, you've just interrupted right. my pattern. And now all of a sudden we can have a genuine conversation. So when you're a salesperson and you're calling on a CEO and CEO answers the phone and let's say the CEO is Lance and Lance says, this is Lance, how can I help? And the salesperson says, hey, Lance, how are you today? You've immediately triggered their program response of, oh yeah, this is a salesperson. Let me do what I always do when I talk to a salesperson right. and quickly get rid of them. So there are right. certain things that we do and we say that trigger those responses. And so we, we've, we've got to learn to be disciplined enough to do something else. And, and I, you know, some people call that disrupting. I call it interrupting the pattern, call it whatever you want, but you have to, you have to do something other than what the typical salesperson does or says. So to your point, you're right. You know, Rich, it's almost, um, Maybe even something like uh, one of the the other jobs I had when I was doing a lot of customer service things, the uh, the CEO always told me, match the tone of the person you're with. Yes. So if it's one of those where somebody actually would send me an email and say, hello, Mr. Moody, um, you know, and let's say it was Jason who sent me that email, I would follow that back with, hello, Mr. Vlad, to keep the same. You're goddamn right you'd say going. Mr. Vlad. <laughs> <laughs> know your know your place, Moody. Yeah, know but I mean, place. and I guess the same thing too. Like you were saying that, and it just only hit me. It triggered me a little bit, only because anytime I pick up the phone and somebody actually does say that, they're like, you know, well, how are you today? And they don't tell me who their name is because the first thing I say, and it's that probably that same pattern, is that you know I pick up the phone. Hello, this is John. So you know you got the right person. And they're like, well, hi, John. How are you today? And I'm like, well, I'm good. Who is this? Right. You right. know, it's, it's automatically like, I, I told you my name. Why don't you say, hey, John, this is so-and-so. How are you? It's like, and then, okay, now we've broken the ice. We're on the same page. Now let's start talking. Yeah, even that how are you is going to trigger, I call the hate crime, right? H-A-Y-T, mm -hmm. how are you today? And I and I it, encourage my clients to completely <laughs> take that out of their vocabulary because yep. it tells you they're a salesperson. And by the way, you're not gaining anything by saying it or asking it. So why are you doing it? It's out of decorum. Right. So throw that out and, and perhaps say, um, John, did I get you at a bad time? Um, or my favorite one is, John, you probably weren't, Rich Austin, probably weren't expecting my call. And now right. it, it's going to uh, prompt them to, to reach back into the uh, Rolodex, let me throw out an old term there, of people that they know or don't know. And now John is thinking, is this a prospect? Is this a somebody that I should know? Is this somebody I'm doing business with? But it takes them away from whatever they were doing and forces them to focus on you. And now you've got a genuine interaction or at least a 10-second window for a genuine interaction, whereas before it's, it's just platitudes. Right. So there's a couple of things that I took away from all the training that Rich provided and a couple of them, like I said, have been part of my natural vernacular now. And the two, if Rich can speak to them, even in general terms, that uh, a lot of the people I interact with at our company are equal business stature. 
like you're worth it. You shouldn't have to apologize for charging a, for a product or expecting something in return. And then the term of upfront contracts, which has saved embarrassment, time, effort. It's just these two things, upfront contracts and equal, equal business stature that, um, my God, the world might actually be a better place should people conduct themselves with these sorts of things. And Rich, I'd love if you could speak to either one of those because uh, they are groundbreaking, in my opinion. Yeah, so I, I'll, I'll gloss over both of them because I think one begets the other. I think if you execute an upfront contract, you've now set the stage to build equal business stature. So that might be a buzzword. Um, equal business stature is really just developing a peer-to-peer relationship. Um, and if you think about the average salesperson calling on the average executive, there's a hierarchy there, and the salesperson certainly isn't an equal. And so in our world, if you want to command respect versus command being liked, which, by the way, uh, our numbers show we do lots of assessments that 82% of salespeople have a high need for approval, which Mm. means they would rather be liked than be respected on a sales call. They would judge their sales calls effectiveness based upon the fact they like me versus they respected me and I asked them questions that made them think differently. So that's something that we could chew on as well. Um, But the bottom line is is we have to establish a peer-to-peer relationship where we're looked at as equals. And so the upfront contract is, is one way that we can do that. Um, it's, it's a simple five-step process and, um, it, it just starts with, let's figure out what the purpose of this interaction is. So you can do this, whether you're having a conversation with your wife about how many places you're going to visit on Thanksgiving to avoid conflict. You can, you can execute this in a departmental meeting. You can execute this on a sales call, but the number one thing we got to figure out is what's the purpose of us getting together. Um, The the second piece of this is, uh, what is my prospect's agenda? What would a win be for them in this amount of time that we have together? So Mm -hmm. having them articulate that um, and and space it to us in a way where we understand and we can repeat it back to them. And then secondly, or the third piece is our agenda um, and what we're hoping to accomplish so that they understand exactly where we're going with this conversation um, and they're not asking themselves, okay, when's the hammer going to drop? And, and when is this person going to ask me to buy? Let's, let's together build an agenda that says, here's where we're going. Uh, the fourth piece is time, making sure that we both um, have a clear understanding about how much time we're going to spend within the interaction. Um, and the fifth piece is outcomes. And this is the, the pattern interrupt um, that really is going to separate the average salesperson from the professional salesperson because there are really two different outcomes in a sales call. The first outcome is we're going to get to a no. Um, And so I encourage all the folks that I work with um, to state to a prospect very bluntly, look, if if at any point in time I get the sense that we're not a good fit for you, I'm just going to tell you that. So are you okay if if I do that? And the the average response that I get is one of shock. I I don't know. Prospects are just not used to a salesperson saying, I might disqualify you. But to John's point earlier, if we're being authentic, if we're being genuine, if we're acting in a transparent way, that is certainly one of the outcomes we could get to. Um, To tie into that, I I might say to my prospect, on the other hand, um, you might decide at some point in this conversation before our 60 minutes is up, that we're not a good fit for you. Um, Could be me, something I did or said or didn't say. Could be our approach, could be our philosophy. Don't care what it is. Um, But if you get that sense, I just want you to tell me and and, and, give me the courtesy of of letting me know that we're out of the running. And 
on the other side of the coin, um, if we get to the end of this and, and you're hearing what you want to hear and I'm hearing what I want to hear, um, let's talk about what that next step might look like. So when we execute an upfront contract, and, and those are the five elements, um, then we, we automatically start to build equal business stature. And, and I like to look at it as, as a running bar graph, let's say, of my respect on a sales call. Um, so how high is it? And, and after I execute an upfront contract, um, you know, that bar should be pretty high. It's, it's, it's amazing what respect will do for you in terms of a conversation. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. I mean, especially wow. for me, um, res yeah. respect really is everything. Like even a, a couple of months back, um, when we were starting to look for like somebody to handle some SEO stuff, it was one of those that after about a couple of emails and a phone call with them, and, uh, we really just couldn't get any pricing out of them. Uh, I would get this long, e um, drawn out reason of why and all this other stuff. So I just finally said at one point, it's like, you know, I appreciate all of that, but why don't you just save your breath? I don't think we're a good fit, you know? And he, and he came back and he was legitimately shocked and, I, and it really came down to look, if I have to argue with you just to get a pricing on it right now, what's that going to translate to if we actually go work together on something, this is going to be a nightmare and I just can't do that. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great point. I, I mean, the, the one piece of leverage that a selling entity has is their intellectual property. So the moment we give it up, which is what our pricing or how we're going to address the project, the moment we give it up is the moment we cease to have any leverage in the relationship. So on one hand, I can respect what they're doing, but on the other hand, once we've established value, now we get to start talking budget. And that should happen right. much sooner in the process. It should not be something that we learn about during the presentation, it should be a conversation that's had um, before the presentation ever happens, for sure. Right, right. Or at least somebody like you're saying, even if it's one of those that they don't give me a pricing, if if they could even say, well, you know, what's your budget? Then let me come back with a proposal that will fit your parameters. At least that point, then we would still be on the same page of, okay, he's listening to what I'm doing. He's going to make sure whatever he's trying to sell me is going to fit this criteria we already set up. Exactly. So, Rich, I got a question that kind of goes in line with some of this, and, and that is how would you suggest people best prepare for a business conversation that they know is going to be difficult? Like, you know you have to get through it. You know you need to get to the end, but you know it's going to be contentious. It's going to be challenging for one reason or another. I mean, what is, what is your uh, method of prep for a, a call or a face-to-face -face conversation with, with a situation like that? <laughs> so it, it is a really good question. Um, let me let me ask you this, Jason. Um, would, yeah. would you mind giving me an example? Because there's a number of different ways that I could go with this. Um, is there something that you had in mind, or do you want to keep it general? Well, normally general, but if you were going to have a conversation with someone, let's say, uh, which what's the most difficult thing for companies to talk about is money. Probably the second yeah. most difficult is time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So uh, I know that a client needs uh, my services. We've already established that the services make sense. Um, the dollar amount that they are willing to spend versus what they need and the cost for that uh, are not the same. Um, and, I, and I'm trying to give them the most information that's possible for them to make a good decision based on the need that we've discovered through all of our conversations, mm -hmm. but they're looking to spend less, therefore are going to have a, 
a lesser product, a lesser experience, and maybe a poor experience that then may, you know, eliminate an opportunity for us to work together again. So knowing the conversation is going to be difficult because I know we're far apart, even though we've done all our research, had all our preliminary conversations and established the fact that, yeah, our, our solution is the way to go, but we're far apart in terms of basically it's the money. So knowing you're going to go into a conversation like that, I mean, is there any kind of general rule of thumb or things to avoid just so that you can, I don't even want to say save face. You want to maintain a good business relationship, even if it's like, you know what, we're going to pull out, let's, let's revisit in six months or whatever it happens to be. So it's interesting that you're asking this question around money specifically. I gave a talk to my peers um, in Baltimore. We have a conference three times a year in which we come together and it's kind of a train to trainer and share best practices. And and the title of the talk was how to leverage fear in sales. And, um, And so I did an informal survey of my clients from around the country, just asking them to tell me what's your, like, what's your biggest, hairiest, nastiest fear when you go into a sales opportunity? What are the questions and the situations that you dread and the it, it was I think it was the third most um, or the third highest answer to this was um, something around money, right? Something having to do with money. And, and my belief around this is you, you, you have to diffuse the bomb before it blows up. Um, your intuition and, and your experience probably tells you, OK, I need to build tremendous value. And then once I built tremendous value, uh, we, we can talk about price. And what I'm going to suggest is it's the first thing that you talk about. And, and so we have to set a trap in order for ourselves to do that. And so what I would suggest is at the, at the early stages of a conversation in which it's an opportunity and it's sort of in that discovery phase, I have to have the conviction and the courage and the steel in my spine to say something like, look, um, you know, at, at some point in this conversation, we're going to have to talk about money. And it's always awkward for me because we're always higher than our competition. So before we go any further, I, I would just like to understand from you what types of things you typically need to see, um, what what types of things you, you typically need to hear, um, what things you need to experience in order to feel comfortable investing in a premium product. And that's the thing, the word premium, how many people are going to shy away from that? Because you not only are you saying it, it's not really a buzz term. It is an actual belief statement that, yeah, you're talking to somebody who's worth their weight in gold. And, and I want to be able to share that experience with you and give you that kind of service or result or whatever it happens to be. And that's kind of like what Lance, you were talking about that. Like you're designing everything you're talking around, serving the customer for the greater good. So would you agree that that word premium also plays a big part? even with internal selling? I don't know about internal selling, but the, the the thing, the service and the products that I provide to my customers and most of my customers are all, I wouldn't say internal, but I don't, again, I don't have any control over how much I spend or how much I don't spend or how much the customer spends or anything like that. But my product, what I give them still represents the company and it, it still has some type of sales ramifications down the road. And so I, and I, I understand that from my, I mean, I've, I've never been in sales. I've been in, well, I can't say that I've been in an inside sales position, but 
I've been mostly a sales support position in my career in the distribution where like when I was, you and I were working together, I mean, you and I were inside sales kind of support people and uh, yeah. And so pretty much, yep, that's true. But, and so I've been in that type of support role most of my career and I don't, I'm not comfortable selling, you know, I, I'm not, uh, I, I feel like what I provide, I let my product speak for the speak for itself. I mean, in, in, in my current role, I mean, I, I don't need to sell the customer anything, but what I provide the customer is exactly what they need. And it's, it provides, it provides them what they require from us at that point. And that, in that particular customer, um, customer touch point. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd like to, I'd like to chime in with that real quick as a, what you were just explaining about, (laughs) you know, there's regulations for everything you do and something that I've, I've been a part of in, in any organization that I've been a part of is I, I am a change agent. I mean, I, I enjoy change. I embrace it. I, you know, I direct it, I promote it. And so I'm always thinking outside the box. I mean, I work for a, I work for a company that is, is as innovative as any other tech company out there. And, you know, so we, I mean, we, it's almost, it's almost a requirement that we think outside the box and we make changes. We, we buck the system and we look at the processes that we do and say, how can we do this better? And um, not to say that you can't do that, but you know, as a federal government employee, you may not have that opportunity to necessarily think outside the box or you could think outside the box, but actually take an action against that may not be as easy as what I do. You know, how, how difficult is that for you and, and Rich, I mean, like Andrew was asking, how how difficult would that be from a from a uh, a company standpoint? Like what you would come in looking at, you know, having like he asked, you know, moving that moving that ship like that because, I mean, to be to be in a position where you are stifled by you know processes and you know re- requirements and regulations, I can't I can't imagine you know uh, doing that. And, you know, just, and that's just my, that's just my style. It's like, you know, I'd, I, you know, I, I'd like to take, you know, somebody in authority and just tell them to shove it up their wahoo. But, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, that's just who I am. Yeah. Yeah. Is that the technical term? You think I'm a jigger? So I, it's, it's when you have a large, and we call them enterprise type, sales, um, when you're selling to, to large, sophisticated organizations with um, sophisticated uh, buying processes and, and many people that have influence on, on the buying decision, um, it, it, it certainly is a much larger, slower moving ship. Um, and, and within that ship, you're going to have people that are white knights, people like Lance that, that want to see change happen. And you're going to see other people who uh, want to stick to the old way of doing things because that's what we do around here. Or maybe there's regulation around it. So um, there's a couple of points I want to bring up. First of all, 
at any change, um, there's a process and, and we look at that. That's one of the things I look at the, and, and ask my clients to analyze, especially the executives. When we start working together, tell me about change in your organization. And what I'm looking for, there's five stages of change. Um, you've got denial, right? So somebody says, I don't need to change or change is stupid. I don't want to do it. Um, you've got then resistance. Well, we could, but it would be super hard and no thanks. You've got exploration. Um, let's try it out. And that lasts about two or three days. And then they go back to the old ways. Uh, you get to the point of commitment where somebody actually takes on a new habit or, or is willing to look at a new way of moving forward. And then finally, you've got adaptation um, where the new way becomes uh, habitual. We don't even have to think about it anymore. So there's a process that's involved there. And I think we have to do a good job of a, of a selling entity of not investing too much time and resources with opportunities that are behind the curve in the change model. So we have to figure out where they're at and figure out where the high ranking executives are um, that have influence on that process. So that, that's, a, that, that's a methodology that, that we'll use. Hmm. Um, now, to bring it to, uh, to an antidotal um, example, there's a client of mine um, who sells to the government and um, they sell. Let me I'm going to try to make this as generic as possible. Uh, let's just say building materials. Um, for uh, U.S. consulates around the world. And so you can imagine that there are lots of rules and regulations into um, who would get chosen to, to actually bid and what that process looks like and how they go, how they go through and choose who's going to win that bid. Um, because now uh, the materials that are used in consulates around the world must come from the U.S. Uh, you wouldn't want to build a, a consulate in Russia and have every fourth wall be bugged. So um, that's that's the whole impetus behind it. And um, this <laughs> yeah. and that's that's to my knowledge from what i understand that's that was uh, the impetus behind why they do it that way now um and so if if you're going to go through that process it's going to be a lengthy um bid and, and request for proposal uh method that you're going to have to adhere to and they try to keep it very by the book and and the problem with keeping it by the book is i can't help you if you're not 100 percent transparent with me and so to really distill this down to the simplest form that I can, we have to do a really, really good job, um, high level, elite job of understanding um, the, the company's pain points that, that exist for why they'd want to use us over somebody else. But we also have to understand the personal pain points in terms of if this doesn't work out the way that you hoped it would, what does it mean for you? And the average salesperson or executive is unwilling to ask those questions and go down that road because they don't believe that they've earned the right because they haven't established equal business stature. So to, to tie this back to an earlier thing that we talked about. Um, so I, I hope that sheds a little bit of light into this process. But uh, um, to, to your point, Andy and, and Lance, um, it, it is certainly a much longer sales cycle. There are more people that are going to have influence on the decision, and we have to do a very good job of investigating and examining, should we even be bidding this? Should we even throw our hat in the ring? Because chances are it's going to take up a lot of company time and resources and money. I've got clients that have to invest $150,000 to uh, $350,000 just to submit a bid. And if you're going to do that, um, you better be damn sure that you've got a, a better than 50% chance of winning the business. And if you don't, then you, you're wasting your time. Well, I feel like I'm getting a lot Ew. smarter in this episode, but we're getting you're kind not. of towards the end. Settle down. <laughs> Son of a... Die. 
no choking, no choking, no dying, no choking. Um, you, no, I'm not choking. You're choking. Um, so uh, the let's let's uh, finish up with our with our guest Rich. With Rich, so you moved. Uh, same company, but you you left a a a a, a really great situation in Ann Arbor, Michigan to. Uh, take up a new challenge with Sandler in the greater Chicago land area. Um, so my question is simply this, how, how you like in Chicago and uh, what, uh, if, and when you ever get free time, which we know is few and far between, what do you, what do you like to do? What's your, what's your poison there in the windy city? Um, well, you know, you, you, you get more than you bargain for when you move to Chicago. I'll tell you that much. There is no shortage of things to do. And, um, full disclosure, my wife and I moved from the city where I lived for just over uh, two years to Naperville, which is a Western suburb, um, about two months ago. So, um, life has slowed down a little bit, but, um, in my short amount of time here, there, there have been a couple of places that I, I frequent a couple of things that, that we like to do. Um, I'm convinced, and I don't know if anybody else has differing opinions uh, on this podcast, that the best pizza in Chicago is not Lou Malnati's or any of those uh, uh, bigger pizza places that are more well-known. It's Pequod's uh, up in the Lincoln Park area. I never ate when I was up in uh, Lincoln Park. Deep dish. I don't know that one. Oh, I'm I'm telling you, it's it's unbelievable. It's oh, like yeah, Jets it's, on it's steroids, good. and you guys know Jets uh, from oh, Michigan. So Jets. It it's unbelievable. So so that's a um, that's a that's a go-to place. Aberdeen Tap is a, is a cool little bar um, that's was right down the road from where we lived in the West Loop, and it's it's actually got some greenery um, and a great outdoor patio, and so we we would spend a lot of time there. Um, I, I'm a huge uh, nut for the sunset cruises, the architectural cruises. I know yeah. um, that that's what the tourists do, but it is it, this time of year when the sky is pink and the, and the sun is going down. Um, you know, it's absolutely gorgeous, and so that's something we enjoy doing as frequently as we can. And um, you know, really, Jason, we we love to travel, so um, we, we we like going to mountainous regions and uh, and doing a bit of hiking. Um, and so we've done that. We've been very fortunate. Uh, to do that in various locations around the world and um, southwestern and, and northwestern U.S. And um, just uh, to me, there's nothing better than, than being on some remote trail in the mountain, knowing that around any corner there could be a grizzly and, and just that feeling of uh, letting go of control <laughs> and feeling right. very small and, and, um, and, you know, just close to God. It's, it's, it's absolutely amazing. Um, and, and then traveling back to Michigan as, as frequently as I can um, to visit the beloved yeah. sacred ground of Michigan stadium in, in Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, to see my Wolverines play football, um, or go across the uh, 96 to um, to Spartan Stadium in, in a couple of weeks and demolish D'Antonio and, and his uh, band of, of football players. So th those are the things that we enjoy. Love fall, love autumn. Um, any any donut, um, apple cider donut or pumpkin donut that's been freshly made, um, yeah, apple oh, cider, all that stuff. Uh, the foliage, absolute nut for that. So it's my favorite time of year. Yeah, come down to the nice. AP down here in North yeah, Carolina uh, sometime. I like that. Yeah. Well, uh, well, you can take the uh, the bourbon trail and then hang a hard, hard left and end up out where Lance is and get into the craft brew scene. That would be really hard left. Yeah. Holy crap. That's a hard um, right. Yeah, whatever. Well, yeah. 
Well, we know Jason was never really good at directions anyway. No, let's talk about this. If you're heading south down the Bourbon Trail, you turn right, you're going west, you morons. You got to turn left. If you're 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 taking the the Bourbon Trail from the south, though, you're taking the north. You're taking the northern. Nobody starts in the south, Lance. Nobody lives in the south. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I'm not that dumb. I'm just kind of dumb. We're just going to go with that. Tonight's on self-deprecating. We, we all went to Waverly, so. Oh, God damn. So, well, gentlemen, it's getting to be about that time, and I absolutely need to thank you, Rich, for being a part of 40-ish tonight. We really, really appreciate the uh Yeah, thank guidance. you. This one was good. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Really, really enjoying that. And uh, God forbid, if you ever get the bug or we've got a, a better topic, like, you know, in a couple weeks when Michigan State actually does decimate U of M and pulls them out of their top 25 ranking, uh, yet again, uh, we can maybe have a follow-up conversation when it's basketball season. <laughs> uh, I would, I would love to do that. As a matter of fact, I'd, I'd be willing to make a wager. Oh, um, if you want to do that oh, yeah. right here and now on football and basketball season. So, Jason, I'll let you choose the wager, but um, I'm game. Uh, Gull Meadows in a beautiful city just uh, east of Kalamazoo uh, in Richland, Michigan. Gull Meadows Farms is a. Um, oh. A pretty awesome apple orchard, but uh, their donuts, if you're talking about cider donuts or pumpkin donuts, they are, uh, I'm going to go with this. I'm going to go with second to none. They are absolutely unbelievable. I'll back and that I up, Jay. Up, there you go. I could come up with a couple dozen donuts from Gold Meadows, no problem. And I will I will wager a couple of dozen donuts from Dexter Cider Mill, uh, my, my lovely land of Ann Arbor, just west of Ann Arbor and Dexter. Um, they, they absolutely kill it when it comes to those. So I'll put up a about- dozen. Nice. How about a deep dish uh, piccata's pizza? Right, right. There you go. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and as much crap as I give U of M, because I just am not a U of M fan, uh, there is something magical about going to um, – um, oh, crap. I can't, you can't even maybe, say it. You house? can't even no, say it. No, 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 no. What's the, the – Zimmerman, the deli. Zimmerman's there you go. Deli. There you yeah, go. okay. Yeah. Um, that is actually a, a – a, a foodie treat. If you've never been to Ann Arbor, any of the listeners, this is Bear. If you've gone or oh, have an opportunity, I think. it is something else. Uh, I, I'll give props where props are due. Fair enough. So, well, my thanks to, to Rich, of course, and to Lance and to Moody. And uh, thanks for joining us. And, and gentlemen, if, if I don't talk to you soon, I'll catch you in the next one. Bye. This is the week ending. Come on. The week ending. Yeah. We're not going to go with the week ending. Lance said goodbye. Let's do it again, ladies and gentlemen. Right. Have a spectacular evening. See ya. Right. Damn.